Let's open the Scriptures to the book of Exodus to begin with, and then a few verses from Leviticus as well. Exodus chapter 31. Both readings are taken in connection with our text in John 7, where the Lord Jesus interacts with the Jewish leaders about the Sabbath and about the topic of circumcision, but Exodus 31 deals with the Sabbath, and He does so at the occasion of the Feast of Booths, and Leviticus 23 teaches us about the Feast of Booths. So let's begin with God's Word about the Sabbath in Exodus 31, beginning at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people." Six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now we turn to Leviticus 23, where we come to read about the feast commanded by the Lord called the Feast of Booths. Beginning at verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. 
It is a statute forever. Throughout your generations, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. We will be focusing on the first portion of chapter 7. I'd just like to read a few verses from chapter 5 to refresh us with the context. So page 1132 in the Pew Bible, 1132. We've covered this before in the preaching where the Lord Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, but this controversy from chapter 5 gets revisited in chapter 7, and I just want to pick up the last few verses of the John 5 passage, starting at verse 15. John 5, verse 15, so the man who was healed, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Now we turn to chapter 7. And we'll focus on the first 24 verses. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So His brothers said to Him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. And that's the reference to chapter 5, the healing. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's as far as our text will go. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, last time when we were in John, we left the Lord Jesus in Galilee. We left Him bleeding disciples, you may recall. After the miracle of the multiplying of the loaves and the fish, there had been a, a long dialogue, dispute with the crowds between the crowds and Jesus about His claim to be the bread of life whose flesh they must eat. And at the end of that whole long controversy, end of chapter 6, we read that many disciples turned away from following Jesus. They, they, they no longer believed. They turned away. By grace, the twelve disciples stayed, but the majority of people in, in Galilee, they lost their interest in Jesus. And now in chapter 7, Jesus leaves Galilee for Jerusalem in the south, and as far as John's gospel is concerned, He never goes back to Galilee until after the resurrection. All the action from this point forward to the cross happens in Jerusalem in John's gospel. And what we see in chapters 7 through 12 is in broad strokes a basic repeat of what we have seen happen in Galilee, only in Jerusalem it occurs with greater intensity. There are disputes with the Jewish leaders. And there's a growing desire among those leaders to get rid of this Jesus. So when Jesus comes south to Jerusalem, the reaction of the crowds does not really improve from what He had had in the north in Galilee. And the Gospel writer John, he uses the Feast of Booths in our text to, to show this kind of reaction in the south. And it seems that this Feast of Booths is the background in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 and possibly even into chapter 9. John isn't always so precise, but there are signs that it's there in 7 and 8 for sure, I would say, and likely even 9. Now you might recall that back in Galilee in chapters 5 and 6, John first, that was his pattern, he first recorded a, a sign or a miracle of Jesus and then a whole lot of dialogue about that sign. But it's different now in Jerusalem in chapter 7 and 8. It's not 
the miracles that Jesus does that come to the foreground, it's His teaching. Everybody is struck by His powerful teaching. Nobody ever taught like Jesus. And that naturally raised questions among the people. Is what Jesus teaches actually true? It sounds very attractive. It, it's, it's powerful, but is it legitimate? I mean, how come the scribes and the rabbis who've been teaching us all our life, how come they never speak like this? The rabbis, they've been teaching us the law of Moses all the time, but if Jesus speaks so differently from the rabbis, is He bringing to us something different from the law of Moses? Is this Jesus a true teacher or a false teacher? This is the big question hanging in the air. There's all kinds of associated questions swirling about in our text, and we hope to begin finding some answers as I bring you this word of the Lord. At the Feast of Booths, Christ upholds the law of Moses. At the Feast of Booths, Christ upholds the law of Moses. And we'll see first there's an anti-feast vibe and then second, there is a pro-feast teaching. So, John tells us, verse 2, that it's, this is all going down at the Feast of Booths. Well, what is this thing called the Feast of Booths? We don't have such a thing anymore, and in all of Scripture, it's perhaps not one of the better-known feasts. You might recall that God gave to Israel three great feasts, there were actually a few more, but there were three main ones that they were to celebrate each year in Jerusalem. The first feast is Passover. That was to be celebrated in the spring, so March, April. The second feast was Pentecost, or sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. That was a couple of months later in May, June. And the third was this Feast of Booths. The NIV translates it as the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was always held in the fall, in the months of September, October. The Jewish months don't quite align with the months we know today. So that's why there's, it's sometimes partly in one month, partly in another. So this Feast of Booze, it was the last of the great feasts of the year. It was very much like our Thanksgiving Day. It was always held after the last crops were gathered in. The barns were filled with wheat and barley. The grapes had been gathered. The olives had been gathered in. So everybody was in a good mood. There was, for seven days then, God's people were commanded to celebrate, celebrate the ingathering of all the food and, and to be joyful to the Lord for what He had given. But there was more to this feast than thankfulness for food. What made this feast extra special and gave it its name was that the people were required to live in booths for seven days during this feast. That might seem an odd thing to do. When we think of the word booth, we might think of a phone booth or maybe a booth we sit in at a restaurant. And we might wonder how would people live in a booth like that for seven days. But the kind of booth that Scripture is talking about is basically a makeshift shelter, a temporary shelter, kind of along the lines of how the kids might build a fort in the basement. Maybe some of the kids have done that, right? 
You use whatever you can. You get cushions. You prop them up. Blankets, clothespins to hold the blankets, chairs, tables, whatever you can find. Well, the Israelites would do something like that, only they would do it outdoors, and they would take big leafy palm branches and branches from poplars and willow trees and other common trees, and they would weave them together to form a very basic but temporary outdoor shelter. It was like their outdoor fort. And for seven days, they would sleep in there, and they would cook in there. They would live in there. This was their booth. Now, why did the Lord God command them to do this every year for seven days? Well, the Lord wanted to remind them in a very physical way, an unforgettable way, what He had done for them in the days of Moses. We read that from Leviticus 23, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths, tents, kind of a synonym, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. The word for booth shares the same root word as in Hebrew as the word for tent. So when the Israelites every year would go into these temporary booths for a week, they were made to think back to the time when they dwelt in tents, where their forefathers dwelt in tents after God had set them free from slavery in Egypt. After He had brought them through the Red Sea and put them up in tents in the desert, providing them as He did with food and water and shelter and protection. The booths made them think of the Exodus, which was the great saving act of God for the Israelites of old. And now you can understand that the Feast of Booths, it became like a double celebration. Not only were the people thankful for all the food that God had given through the course of the season, but they were celebrating their very existence as a people, a people under God. Without that exodus, way back in the days of Moses, there would be no Israel living in the land of Canaan. There would be no crops on the field. There would be no Thanksgiving celebration. So you see, of all the feasts of the year, this Feast of Booths was the most joyful, the most celebratory, the most anticipated by families. The other feasts were certainly important, and they all had their own joy, don't get me wrong, but this feast was just a little extra. This feast brought out more people. Everybody wanted to be at the Feast of Booths. There was a greater sense of gratitude on this day than any other. It's, a, it's like how, how Dutch people still today celebrate Liberation Day when they were liberated from the occupation of the Nazis, May 5th, 1945. May 5th in the Dutch mind is a powerful day of celebration and gratitude. Well, the Feast of Booths was like that. Still more, it was a reminder that God had saved the Israelites from oppression and slavery, certain death in Egypt. And so the vibe of the feast was, was one of happiness. It was lightheartedness and warm fellowship with each other. The Feast of Booze was a time to set aside personal differences, remember the common heritage that God had given His chosen people, a community saved by grace. So the Feast of Booze was a beautiful time of thanksgiving joy. That was the vibe. 
But that's not the vibe this year, is it, in John 7? We see it among Jesus' own brothers. The earlier part of our text, still up in Galilee, just as the feast is approaching, Jesus' blood brothers, his siblings, they, what do they do? They mock him. They urge him to go to Judea, that your disciples may also see your works that you are doing, for no one, who works, in, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. We know that's a mockery because John adds in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. They weren't speaking a word of advice to try and help Jesus win more converts. Remember what happened at the end of chapter 6. It would have been very clear to Jesus' brothers who were up there in Galilee that he had lost a lot of disciples. It's clear from the other Gospels that they thought he was losing his mind. There was a, an, um, an incident where they came to collect him because they thought he was going insane. So here, they, they taunt him. Go find other disciples down south. You've lost all the ones in the north, Jesus. Maybe if you go south, you can finally make it big. That is their approach to their blood brother, Jesus. As the Feast of Booths is approaching. So, not much warm camaraderie from Jesus' siblings. And his siblings, they're really part of a larger picture of opposition to the Lord as his answer to them shows he, in his reply, he speaks about hatred. My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. And then he explains, the world cannot hate you but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Do you realize that, brothers and sisters, that the world hates Jesus? The world in this context is the unbelieving Jewish community, but it applies equally to the unbelieving Gentile community. Remember how Herod killed John the Baptist murdered him, and later supported Pilate in condemning Jesus to death for no just cause. And later, Jesus will teach this to His disciples and to us in chapter 15 of John's gospel. He says there, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you my disciples. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that because you are a Christian, non-Christians will hate you? That's the normal thing. Now, I want to pause over that for a moment, because perhaps you have experienced very nice, unbelieving neighbors who, in fact, do not hate you. You've not experienced hatred from them. They, they're not interested in Christianity, but they're not spitting nails at you. They are polite and friendly. They lend you tools. They chat with you on the driveway. They seem the furthest thing from hating you. So when you read something like this, and in John 15, you might wonder, is it really true that the world hates Christians? 
Do all unbelievers hate Jesus and His followers? Well, we have to understand what Jesus means by that word hate. When we hear the word hate, we normally think of a very powerful feeling of aversion or enmity, which makes a person want to somehow hurt or even destroy the other. Hatred, we think, we, we tend to associate with getting rid of, opposing fiercely, all kinds of emotion in our hearts coming along with that. Well, and it can, it, it can certainly mean that in the Bible, and it does mean that in many cases, but it could also be in the Scriptures much more simply just a rejection, simply a choosing for one over the other. There may or may not be hostile feelings present. Let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus said elsewhere, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Hate and love in that instance are not feelings but commitments. A Christian can serve God with all of his heart, for example, and not feel hostile toward money, right? You don't want to do away with money, do you? You and I, as Christians, we use money. We don't have a hostile feeling toward money. We use it in the service of the Lord. The point is, our dedication is to the Lord, not to money. Money's a tool. Or take another example. Later in John 12, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever hates his life in this world. Does Jesus want us to be hostile and filled with enmity toward our life so that we, we actually destroy and hurt our life? Of course not. He's simply saying that a true follower of His, if push comes to shove, will choose to sacrifice His earthly life and all that goes with it in order to gain eternal life. So hatred at its core is a choice. It's choosing one thing over the other. It's choosing to follow or go with one and reject the other. And that's the essence of what Christ is talking about. Unbelievers, by definition, say no to Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't care if you do, they say, but I don't believe in Jesus. And they say yes to their own desires. They love their life in this world. And so long as they remain unregenerated, they are not interested in Christ. And in that sense, they hate Jesus and they hate us. The feelings of hostility may not be there. They reject Christ and His way, so they will not heed the call to come and worship. They will not engage us in conversations about faith. They just go their own way. Of course, some do, and some come. That's by God's grace. He's gathering in the elect, so please keep having those conversations 
But understand that those who don't listen, and you're going to experience that on your driveways and in the workplace, you will feel the divide, you will feel the opposition, you will feel the rejection to Jesus. Maybe polite, maybe more hostile. Sometimes it could rise up to anger, but either way, don't be surprised when unbelievers reject Jesus and reject you because you follow Jesus. So John, or rather Jesus, is telling us that the Jews generally, but especially the leadership of the Jews, they, they hate Jesus, and their hatred, in their case, is definitely rising up to its maximum expression, for John tells us several times over that they wanted to kill him. We find it in verse 1, we, we read it in chapter 5, but it occurs again here in verse 1, verse 19, verse 20, and verse 25. In fact, they've been wanting to kill him for quite some time. That was the main reason Jesus earlier had to leave Galilee, to avoid their persecution. And at least some of the people in the crowd knew about or sensed this animosity of the Jewish leaders. For while the crowds were abuzz discussing what kind of man Jesus was, we are told in verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. kind of a hush over the crowd when it came to Jesus because they were afraid of persecution from the Jewish leadership. You see the irony in all that? The Feast of Booths was a time to celebrate freedom from oppression, freedom from enslavement in Egypt. And here are God's people living in fear amongst themselves from their very own leaders in their very own capital city. There is a pall of fright and, and uncertainty and suppression and murder cast over the Feast of Booths. How much more of an anti-feast vibe can you get? The leaders want to murder. They keep people from talking. The joy and the gladness and the camaraderie have been replaced by suspicion, envy, and hatred. And who is it that the leaders hate so much that they want to kill Him? The very Messiah who brought about that first exodus all those years earlier and who has now come to them in the flesh, the Son of God, to lead them in the greatest exodus of all, the exodus out of slavery to sin. He's the one they want to kill. How terribly ironic. What must the Lord Jesus have been feeling during all of this? What suffering in his soul to face this kind of rejection from his very own people? I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a moment, right? He's there to help them. He's there to love them, to die for them, and they are mad and seething with anger toward him. The Feast of Booze, like all the sketches, shadows of what the Savior was sent to do, was a pointer toward his work of salvation. Israel should have welcomed Jesus at the Feast of Booze, but instead they were ready to stone him. And what was Jesus' crime? 
All he ever did was uphold the law of Moses, the very law the Jewish leaders held so dear. And that really becomes the new issue as we move along in our text and into chapter 8. Who has the law of Moses on their side? Who is the faithful teacher of Israel? Is it the rabbis or is it this Jesus? This comes to the foreground in verse 14. John tells us, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, that's the leaders, they marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? John mentions the teaching. It's the first time in his gospel that he's mentioned Jesus teaching in the temple. No doubt he had done this earlier in his ministry, but John hasn't mentioned it till now, so it's his way of highlighting it as another source of controversy. In chapter 5, it was, it was his works, the miracle of, of healing on the Sabbath that bothered the Jews, but here it's his teaching that bothers them. Notice, we're not even told what he was teaching, only that the teaching so impressed everybody including the Jewish leaders, they, they notice that it's, it's quite different and it's quite remarkable, even though he hasn't studied, the Jewish leaders take offense at his teaching. They believe themselves to be the experts in God's law. They believe that they are the appointed ones to exposit God's Word. But since Jesus didn't learn in their schools, they don't trust Him. They don't welcome Him. How can He be a faithful interpreter of the law of Moses? does this outsider think he is? He just came out of the blue. But Jesus, he begins to expose their own hypocrisy by stating that he is, the, he is only teaching what God had sent him to teach. He's not coming there on his own authority. He's not bringing his own message. And then he offers them a litmus test, verse 17. It, it's quite an important one. He says there, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If you want to know if my teaching is from God, you will know if you yourself are committed to doing God's will. That's his point. It was a shot across the bow of the Pharisees. Do you Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, do you really, truly desire to do the will of your God? Or are you really just doing your own will? Do you truly want to live so as to please the Lord? If so, then you will discover that what I'm teaching is in full agreement with what Moses taught because both come from God. It's a test that each of us should apply to ourselves, brothers and sisters. A am I serious about wanting to do what God wants each of His people to do? Or do I just pay lip service to that? Yeah, I'm a believer. I want to do God's will. Of course I want to follow the Scriptures. But then quietly just do my own thing. Do I 
sincerely, reverently, before the face of God, in secret and in private and in public, do I humbly seek to live as God instructs, or do I just use the Bible in clever ways to defend how I prefer to live? We should not kid ourselves, beloved. Only the one who seeks genuinely the glory of God by doing the will of God, only that person has the approval of God. It's not the person who says he's a believer. It's the person who pursues the will of God genuinely. And then Jesus hits them upside the head with this challenge Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Here comes, yet none of you keeps the law. Quite something to say to the Pharisees and the scribes. None of you keeps the law. What's Jesus' proof? Next sentence, why do you seek to kill me? That's his proof that they're not keeping the law. The crowd is, you know, there's a mixed crowd, right? There's Jewish leaders in the crowd, but also other people, and there's a, there's a murmur, and there's an instant denial from the crowd. But we know that Jesus is not wrong. We've learned it already in John 5. And some in the crowds know this. They'll even say it in verse 25. There is a murder plot from the very rabbis and scribes and chief priests who supposedly teach us the law of Moses. They're so zealous to uphold the law of Moses, but the law of Moses says, you shall not kill. They're doing the opposite. It was also Moses who told, taught them, all the Israelites, not to hate their brother. We read that in Leviticus 19. It was Moses who said, love your neighbor as yourself, and yet the teachers of the law are the very ones seething with hatred and have murder in their hearts. Jesus is putting them on the spot. You Jewish leaders are not teaching the law of Moses at all. That this particular point about the law of Moses that it should come out, rise to the surface at the Feast of Booths is also no accident. There's a lot of other things about the Feast of Booths. We hope to see some more in the coming weeks, but there's this one other point that happens at the Feast of Booths every seventh year that ties in with that, and that was this. The law of Moses had to be read publicly to all the congregation, to the men, the women, and the children. Deuteronomy 31. They all had to gather. They had to listen to the reading of the whole law, probably the whole book of Deuteronomy. So of all the feasts, the Feast of Booths was the one where the law of Moses was top of mind. It wasn't read every year, but every seventh year, so it would come to mind periodically. The law of Moses was given to guide the covenant people to do what? To live in holiness and in thankfulness to the Lord for having saved them from their misery in Egypt, right? The whole living in booths 
was to remind them of the grace they experienced in being released from oppression in Egypt. And the law showed them how to live in their new found freedom. But the teachers of the law, they had turned the law into a weapon. And they used that law to beat upon the poor and, and, and the widows and innocent people like Jesus to suppress, to create fear and anxiety among the people. Even at the Feast of Booze, there's just a pall of fear around them. They were intent to use the law to rob the people of the joy which God had given them. And that's what Jesus won't stand for. Israel's true teacher stands up for his people. He came to fulfill the law of Moses, to bring it to the fullness and bring in the, the fullness of salvation and the joy that goes with it. And he shows that by pointing back to that earlier work of healing on the Sabbath day, John 5, which we read, which the Jews were convinced was, was, was against the law, that it was such an evil thing that he had to be put to death for healing a man on the Sabbath day. I mean, just think about where their minds are at. The Jews wanted to kill him for doing a miracle of healing on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus doesn't back down. You know, we're, we're more than a year later, you might think, well, maybe Jesus should avoid that topic, don't want to create tension with the leaders. No, he doesn't avoid the topic. He introduces it again. He brings it up to press home his point. He points to the law of circumcision which said that an infant boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day, even if that day was a Sabbath day. He's saying to the Jewish leaders, you know, inside the law of Moses, you, you, you've got two laws that stand side by side without contradiction, even though they appear to be a contradiction. Everyone was commanded to rest on the Sabbath day and to do no work and yet, the work of circumcision had to be done on the Sabbath day. How can that be? How do you square that circle? The Pharisees had never even tried to square that circle. Jesus is saying to them, Pharisees, do you see what the law is all about? It's not just a series of do's and don'ts. There's principles at work underneath them. How can there be no contradiction here unless there is a deeper purpose a common purpose to both the law of Sabbath and the law of circumcision, a purpose that you teachers are blind to see. That's why Jesus says, verse 24, do not judge by mere appearances, but with a right judgment. You have to go below the surface. So how do these two laws not contradict? Well, when you go back and recall that circumcision was a law given by God as a sign of His covenant with Abraham and his offspring. It was a sign. It signified something. The sign signified the promise that as the foreskin was removed from the body, that's circumcision, so the Lord would remove sin from His people's hearts. He would circumcise their hearts. That's what the one signified. It was a promise to the people. 
The Sabbath day was also given anew to Israel. Remember that it was first given at creation, but the Lord repurposed it at Mount Sinai. He gave it afresh as another sign of God's covenant. We read about that from Exodus 31. The weekly day of rest signified the promise that one day God would give His people rest from their sins. So, circumcision and Sabbath were both signs of the covenant. Circumcision and Sabbath were both pointing to the same salvation that God was promising to give. The taking away of sin and the, re, and the, re, the bringing in of, of fellowship and restoration with their Creator. And now when Jesus comes along, the Messiah sent from God, and He heals one of God's children on the Sabbath day, what was He doing but fulfilling both signs in one shot? By that work of healing on the Sabbath, Jesus was saying, I have come to bring healing, health, full restoration of body and soul for my people. I am here to bring about a better exodus to a better promised land where my people can live with me, their Messiah, their Lord, their Savior, in peace and harmony. I've come to fulfill circumcision. I've come to fulfill Sabbath and bring my people to a, a far more glorious celebration even than the Feast of Booths. I'm going to bring my people to the marriage feast of the Lamb where they will know unfettered joy and gladness forever. Of course, I had to heal on the Sabbath. That was the perfect Sabbath thing to do, scribes, Pharisees, and leaders. Jesus doesn't back down, doesn't take an iota away from what He did. He draws a line under it. So, beloved, let us judge Jesus with a right judgment. He loved the law of Moses. He was its true teacher. He fulfilled the law of Moses in our place so that God's curse against us lawbreakers, that curse has been removed from hanging over our heads. And now He puts his spirit in our hearts so that we love the law and begin to keep the law, the, the moral law. Our hearts have been circumcised in the death of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ, our eternal Sabbath from sin has started. So the shadows have disappeared. No more living in booths for us. It's onward and upward until we are given to live in a heavenly home not made with hands. No more booths, but a permanent home to come. Amen. Mm -hmm.